0: You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host, Anne
1: Levine. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people on the ground in Ukraine and around the world. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts, for the Pacifica Radio Network. This is part one of two interviews with our guest, Mark J. Lindquist. Mark J. Lindquist started life in an orphanage in Seoul, South Korea, was adopted and brought to America at the age of eight months, and was raised on a farm in Minnesota. Mark went on to serve in the Air Force honorably at Hickam Air Force Base in Honolulu, Hawaii, and as part of a world touring entertainment unit called Tops in Blue. When the war in Ukraine broke out last February, Mark got on a plane to Lviv to volunteer any way he could. He felt it was a fight for global democracy and what he calls American values. Since March of 2022, Mark has been on an unpaid, self-directed humanitarian mission to Ukraine. He created a 501 C3 called the A-Team. This conflict is referred to by many on social media as a crowd-funded war. Mark and others run small, nimble nonprofits that work together. A few weeks ago, a unit tweeted that they needed two helmets. Within 15 minutes, someone responded that they had them, and those life-saving helmets got to the front that day. Mark J. Linquist, you have been on a humanitarian mission to Ukraine to deliver non-lethal aid directly to Ukrainians. You just got back from a trip to the United States. What did you bring back with you to Ukraine?
0: I live in the booming metropolis of Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> and I was up there doing a big fundraiser and collected more winter weather gear. You got to remember, in Ukraine, it still gets down to 40 degrees Fahrenheit during the night into late May. And so if you're living in a trench in eastern Ukraine and it's 40 degrees You're still going to want something warm. Uh, What else did I have? I had some medical supplies as usual. And then we had collected thermal socks, under armor type thermal wear for folks to be wearing out there in the trenches and some civilian wear as well. Because a lot of these folks had coats. They had things to keep warm, but their house got destroyed by a missile. And so they don't have these clothing items So we do bring some gently used clothing into the country and drop them off at our volunteer hubs. And people love it when they get gear from America. It kind of serves many purposes. It lifts spirits to know that Americans are behind them. To have something that uh, was donated by an American certainly makes people feel good. And of course, it does keep them warm.
1: Where are you right now?
0: I am in Kharkiv, Ukraine, a place that we got to know last summer and we felt like the need was greatest up here when the Russians were about 10 miles away. We delivered an iPad and a drone from a nonprofit out in San Diego, House of Ukraine. They wanted me to hand deliver that to folks and, you know, they use those for surveillance to see over the hill to see if there's bad guys coming at them. We live in a world where you don't have to have a man on a hill with a spyglass looking for the enemy troops. Now you can send a drone. They save lives because they can tell you where the enemy positions are and, you know, keep our troops prepared.
1: There are no instruments of war that you're donating. Your donations are humanitarian.
0: Correct. Our priority is non-lethal aid. But it is probably a gray area if you're giving medical supplies or any supplies to an army. But for crying out loud, give the guy a bandage so he can stay alive. That also seems like a humanitarian cause. If I bring a guy body armor or a helmet, that's keeping that soldier alive because 80% of the injuries over here are shrapnel based, as well as 80 to 85% of the deaths are because of blood loss. And so if you can keep somebody in their vital organs from being hit by shrapnel, that's preserving life. The drones that we use don't have thermal imaging capability, so they're not able to be used for necessarily some of the more offensive operations. They fly around, just have a camera on it. They act as, like I said, like a guy on a hill with a spyglass. And we've judged that these drones save more lives than anything.
1: How are you sourcing them?
0: Anywhere we can get them. You know, I've got a guy that works at Apple out in Silicon Valley and on their internal Craigslist board. You know, these drone enthusiasts are always selling their old drones. We get them used on eBay. We get them in Poland brand new for around $3,000. You can get them on the used market for around 1700 to 2000 if you're lucky. A lot of times people will donate those back home and we've delivered a lot of those here in the country.
1: If I have a brand new iPad or even a gently used iPad in my home, do you want that?
0: Yeah, send it to my address in Fargo, absolutely. They're using them to control or reconfigure drones. And a lot of times they're used for different communications with their drone teams. And those types of things often get destroyed. When a trench gets shelled, you know, or a tank comes upon their position, a lot of times you can't grab all of the electronics communication devices that you need. And so they get obliterated. And so, yes, the answer is yes.
1: Now, how long will you be in Kharkiv, do you know, well, before you come back to the U.S.?
0: Uh, Well, I'll be actually based out of Kyiv. I I push out of here tomorrow morning to get back to Kyiv and really get cracking on some fundraising and executing my fundraising plan that I have in mind.
1: You're fundraising to the
0: world. Because we have to remember that Ukraine is going through a Great Depression-style economic crisis that is double our Great Depression. Imagine if the United States of America had to fight World War II in the 1930s. That's what it's like over here times two. And so everybody is tapped out. Everybody has been trying to save the lives of fellow Ukrainians. Folks donated everything they could early on. And, you know, when you don't have a job and 90% of the businesses in your cities are closed, it's really hard to continue that level of donations. Yeah, And they don't have any money. All the volunteer organizations I work with, all they need is money to do the job that they want to do and have to do. I'll be back to the United States probably early May. I have a Lions convention to speak to to try to activate Lions International to uh, do whatever they can for people in Ukraine. And then I'll be back in June for my last professional speaking engagements that I will do, at least for the foreseeable future.
1: Now, Mark Lindquist, you're a public speaker, a communicator, and... I will add to that, an extremely colorful personality.
0: (laughs) and You know, uh, yes, that's the life of an entertainer, right?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Tell us about your childhood. I was
0: born in 1981 in Seoul, Korea. And you got to remember, Korea in the early 80s is not the Samsung Times Square looking place that we know of today. Mm -hmm. It was largely in rural Korea, a third world country. And so in the early 80s, Korea couldn't take care of their babies, and they sent thousands of children overseas. I was one of those kids that started out life in an orphanage and then was brought to America at age eight months. So on March 5th of 1982, I landed at Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport and was adopted by the Lindquist family in rural Minnesota on a farm. The only thing I've ever known or remember is life in America. And once I got old enough to appreciate the fact that, man, life could have gone a lot differently for me, I really just started to take action based on that gratitude for the life that I've been given, serving in AmeriCorps, serving in the United States Air Force, now serving in Ukraine, recognizing that the gift of freedom and being brought to a country that enjoys freedom is a gift you can never repay. And so uh, I've tried to align my actions in my life with that circumstance. And my service in Ukraine is certainly part of that.
1: When you fly to Ukraine from Fargo, tell me what that trip is. It
0: usually takes me about two and a half days to get to Kiev. I have to originate out of Minneapolis because the plane is too small that goes to Fargo. It's just a regional airport. And so drive myself down to Minneapolis, get on the plane, usually transfer in Amsterdam because it's almost guaranteed that they'll lose your luggage in Charles de Gaulle in Paris. So you connect through (laughs) Amsterdam and then you get to Warsaw. And uh, you take a car that you hire or a bus or a train into Ukraine. Well, and then another eight hours or so to get out to the Dunbass, sometimes 10 to 12. So it's a long journey, but countless humanitarian volunteers from the Western world have come and done just that. Nobody goes empty-handed when they come into Ukraine. They always bring something from America or wherever they originated. The bags that we have that we're carrying with us have life-saving tourniquets in them. So it doesn't matter how difficult it might be to schlep those bags through the airport or how much it might cost. We do it because we know at the other end that soldier is absolutely going to use that tourniquet. When the war started, we thought every soldier should have two tourniquets on them. Turns out they should have three or four.
1: Tourniquets and the anticoagulants yes. are in such shortage, and I don't understand why. Yeah. Can you explain that?
0: And it's disappointing that war profiteers have gotten involved because before the war, you could get tourniquets on Amazon for $15, and now they're about 35 But the solution is this, smart operators in Ukraine understood that bringing aid from America is the least efficient way to do it. The people in Ukraine are so intelligent, they have ramped up the supply chain that's necessary. So I can get tourniquets locally that the Ukrainian National Guard approves for $15 from a company called SICH, S-I-C-H. Others have identified other local manufacturers with approved tourniquets that actually work. The problem is if you get it on Amazon, I'm going to get in the weeds just a little bit. Please do. There's something called a Cat 2 or a Generation 2 tourniquet. And so they have a stamp on them. They're a white stamp. And that would usually prove to you that that tourniquet has gone through some pretty rigorous testing and is up to par. However, the copycats of the world and some of the Chinese manufacturers have just decided to throw that stamp on whatever tourniquet they produce. And so a lot of times, tourniquets come in the country that break because the crank that you use to turn and tighten the tourniquet breaks when you're trying to apply a lot of pressure or the plastic clip that cinches the tourniquet breaks. Mm -hmm. And so they have manufactured tourniquets in the Ukraine that are high quality. And so those are much more preferred than the things that you get online. And so largely, I'm asking people to donate the money and then I can buy them locally Now that solves a bunch of problems. A, you pump money into the Ukrainian economy. B, you don't have to wait for it to cross the ocean or travel across the continent. And, you know, C, the success story is it's probably a 72-hour turnaround from the time I order it to the time I get it into the hands of a soldier.
1: How much does a tourniquet cost? $15.
0: $15. U.S. Dollars.
1: I got a friend out in
0: Washington, D.C., dear friend of mine. Her name is Karen. And every time she goes to Starbucks, she sends me $5 on Venmo because she feels guilty <laughs> for, for buying a $5 coffee, right? And I said, well, that's perfect. So every time when I get that donation, I, I know where she is. I mean, I can't tell you how many tourniquets she's bought that way. She's also sent me larger donations at different times. But that's just a great example of a small donation can go towards a single tourniquet for a guy that will need it for his battle buddy or himself.
1: Well, thank you for reminding us of that, because if you go to a huge NGO, a lot of us feel like five bucks is a drop in the bucket. But if we send something to you or someone like you, we can have full confidence that it's getting used properly.
0: I know that transparency is paramount in this conflict, that the messages of corruption in Ukraine have gone rampant. And I want to speak to that in two ways. Number one, us American veterans over here, we're not going to steal from the cause of freedom for crying out loud. And so there's full transparency in what we do. You know, I'll be right up front with you. I'm a known entity. You can Google my name and you'll find everything about it. I get a little disability payment from my time in the military that I pay my bills with. And it's enough to go around over here because the American dollar is so strong. Coffee's that would cost $5 at Starbucks cost you 99 cents here. And so I'm able to pay my own way. I've spent every dollar that I had for my business and savings. And I'm not special doing that. I'm not special at all doing that. Every volunteer out here who's done long-term work has spent all of their savings to the tune of tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we're out of money. And so those are the challenges we're trying to, to overcome. I'm gonna start posting screenshots of my bank account and you can get an image of the person I delivered it to you got to come over here and you got to meet these people and you got to realize that although governments around the world may have corruption, the people that are trying to save their lives of their brother, their uncle, their cousin, their husband, they are not corrupt. In fact, many of the people in Ukraine that I've met uh, when the subject comes up, there's a push in Ukrainian society right now to prove to the world that corruption are not in the society, they're in other levels of big NGOs or governments. These are people we trust. We've been to their warehouses. We've been on deliveries with them. We know that they're using the money to buy the things at local stores and vendors that are needed. And there's many times where Ukrainians won't take the cash that I'm trying to give them. The people that I deal with and the NGOs that I work with want it sent on some trackable Venmo PayPal or something like that. So that's my experience.
1: Since we're talking about this, what's the address where our listeners can send things to you
0: the easiest way to do is just google my name you'll come up with my website it's mark backslash ukraine mark j lindquist.com backslash ukraine my address is there it is 3120 25th street south number 160 in fargo 58103 that's where people can send aid and whenever i go back home i pick up three or four suitcases full of aid, and I hand carry it over because a year into this operation, still the fastest way to get aid over is to carry it on a commercial ticket. These days, unfortunately, the airlines have stopped giving us free humanitarian baggage. And so... If people do donate, you know, a, a large sum of aid, you know, we're asking also, could they get a friend to donate $100 so we could pay for an extra bag when we come over?
1: That's disappointing news that the airlines have stopped giving free <laughs> handling.
0: You know, since it's not in the news as much anymore, it's maybe not as in vogue to be helping Ukraine. Politicians have made it into a political issue. Unfortunately, a lot of the major corporations that I've been in touch with, and my Rolodex has Fortune 500 executives in it. I speak for those companies. And I have probably wasted more time barking up those trees than anything this last year, asking these corporations to open up their pocketbooks and just give us a little bit of help. But they think they're not in that position to do so because they don't want the bad PR. I've called Delta headquarters in Atlanta. I've talked to everybody that could be possibly talked to. And the answer is no. And so... Yeah, that's pretty disheartening that us little humanitarian aid workers, none of us getting paid are having to pull money out of our own pockets to get this aid over here when there's empty space on planes all the time.
1: You are listening to Ukraine 242. This is Anne Levine reporting from Womr for the Pacifica Network. Thank you for joining us. Our guest, Mark J. Lindquist, now describes a 40-hour march he did in Fargo last week in minus 20 degree temperatures to raise dollars for a veterans home in Kiev. That was 40 hours without a break. Could you tell us about your recent march?
0: You know, I was sitting in Kiev last July with a colonel from the Ukrainian army and I was asking him, what do you need? I was going to go to Washington, D.C. and do some lobbying in Congress, meet with senators and ask for more help. He said, you know what, Mark, largely governments and armies are going are to solve the javelins and the Stinger missiles and the, the armament problem. What we need more people to do, you specifically, is to go back to America and make sure that they don't forget about us. Because in about June or July last year, the reporters stopped calling and putting it on the news. And so I decided that with my, I guess, small public figure status, maybe I could keep it in the media, at least locally, if not nationally. Last December, I had done a 16-night, 17-day operation sleepout where I slept out in a tent in Fargo, North Dakota, in 40 Below, to collect winter weather gear. And so I came back in February to do the next round of awareness, and that was a 40-hour ruck march, where I marched 47 hours with 30 minutes of sleep to raise money for a veteran rehabilitation center in Kyiv.
1: You were in snow and ice. What was the temperature (laughs) like?
0: It started out at 20 below because I started at 5 a.m. on Sunday. And then luckily it warmed up a little bit throughout the day. But the wind was about 20 miles an hour or so up in Fargo because that's where we manufacture cold and send it out to the rest of the world. (laughs) 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 And so I was walking up and down Veterans Boulevard in Fargo, you know, with my big Ukrainian flag over my backpack. And my little, I guess, uh, what do you call it, gimmick or game that I was trying to play was... I started out that march at 5 a.m. with thin gloves, a crappy hat, no scarf, and you know, nothing nothing to eat, and I didn't even bring my wallet.
1: I watched some of the clips from that march. I had no idea you started out with nothing.
0: That's what these soldiers are starting out with. The point was hey, Americans don't know what we do over here. So I'm going to simulate for you what we do. We got to go ask a local soldier what he needs. And we got to go find him on a road in Eastern Ukraine you've never traveled on and deliver it to him, hand deliver. So I said, hey, folks, I'm going to do this for 40 hours. If you want me to stay hydrated and eat, you got to bring me food. You got to bring me Gatorade. You got to bring me a scarf and better gloves. And sure enough, within 30 minutes after I posted on Facebook, Friends were delivering aid to the point where I had so much Gatorade in my rucksack and you don't know how heavy those big bottles of Gatorade are until you get 25 of them donated from friends.
1: What did you do with all the extras when your rucksack got to weigh 50 pounds?
0: Well, eventually a friend came and said, do you want to put some of these bottles in my car? (laughs) Because let's be honest, I'm a little Air Force guy that didn't train for a 40-hour march. (laughs) You know, but I mean, the pack was still 30, 35 pounds plus during that march. And every step, I mean, my feet were aching. My hips were were sore. My knees were, you know, just screaming at me. It was just a way to bring the work in Ukraine to the local people. And I hope that they understood what we were doing. You know, I'm not shy to do these things that might be a little bit out there because, hey, we live in a world today where you got to do something crazy to get people's attention sometimes. And so... You know, marching forty eight hours in Fargo, North Dakota, and 20 below certainly uh, qualifies as crazy. But it works. People then started to donate, and we raised about $20,000 for that veteran rehab center. And so these publicity stunts, I'll call them, uh, what do you expect from a showman and an entertainer? And so I think it's something I'm uniquely suited to do. We estimate that 50% of the non-lethal aid that's brought into the country is brought by volunteers. A lot of people say, well, why why do we need to deliver food tourniquets and body armor to these guys? Hey, the most sophisticated governments and armies on planet Earth, as we're seeing, have a hard time supplying a million-man army that didn't exist last year. And so it is a hard task for anybody to keep a million soldiers supplied on a front line that extends from New York to Dallas. And so that's the type of thing that we run into is soldiers that are ill-equipped, not because of any corruption, nefarious action or whatever but simply the task is too large
1: i've been told that a lot of aid is sitting in warehouses oh
0: Um, my god yes
1: could you describe how and why that is
0: the how is this the western world did a very good job in early spring last year of donating everything that they possibly could Unfortunately, in those aid deliveries of shipping containers and cargo planes, it was a lot of the world's COVID excess, gowns, N95 masks, non-sterile gloves. And so unfortunately, a lot of the warehouses are full of those things that are less valuable to a population full of 8 million internally displaced and a million new soldiers. And so when those aid deliveries came in, the Western world thought that victory was getting it across the border into Lviv, Ukraine. However, that would be like getting it into Pittsburgh when the war is in Philadelphia. You're still shy of the goal because the fighting is out east in the Donbas, which is a 15-hour trip from Lviv. And there was a bit of hoarding going on. And I'll explain it like this. Ukraine is divided up into oblasts or regions, much like we know states. And so if you don't know where Putin is going to attack next and he might attack your doorstep next, then the governor of Utah, even if the fighting was in Virginia, might want to get all the supplies that he or she can get their hands on in, in case Putin attacks Utah. Does that make any sense?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And, and so, you know, I'll credit maybe some of the, of the hoarding to that. In fact, we saw a room full of Starlink last spring. And there might have been three thousand Starlink units, and we said, "How fast are you going to get those out to the front lines?" And the government official said, "We're not. <gasps> We're going to keep this in Lviv in case the power goes out, and we need internet here." Well, that was at the time very frustrating. Still very frustrating. He didn't get it to the frontline units. But then, of course, the power did go out this winter. Hopefully, they did use those Starlink. But I've walked through warehouses in Lviv in western Ukraine where there is no fighting. And they're chock full of supplies. And we call Lviv the place where supplies go to die. And we have done whatever we can to move that supply to eastern Ukraine where it is needed. But you got to go through a lot of hurdles to get the right things to the right places out here. You have a whole host of problems. Largely, it is a situation out here in Ukraine where the big aid organizations don't travel to the Donbass because they don't have the risk tolerance. They don't have the insurance that would allow them to go to places where there's heavy bombing. And so it's done very piecemeal, very, very small deliveries. So it's got to be done by people like me. And there's probably only a few hundred of us left in the country now. Whereas in the spring, there were probably a few thousand.
1: I've also heard American NGOs who are committed to not delivering any aid that can be possibly used as instruments of war. Have yeah. you seen yeah.
0: that? Absolutely. And there's nothing that frustrates me more about this conflict and war zone than that. Folks that have the ability to help for some bureaucratic reason are withholding that help. And so it's very frustrating to see organizations receive millions and millions of dollars because of their trusted name and then understand that the fact that it is a war zone complicates the matter greatly, that a lot of these organizations won't take the risk to somehow equip a military. The fact that it is a war zone complicates the matter greatly. And that is understandable, I guess, to the degree that equipping a foreign military is not something we do on planet Earth very often with civilian dollars and donated dollars, right? And so my perspective is that it is the little guy, the small NGO the unaffiliated independent volunteer underneath no heading of an NGO that is able to do the best and most work out here. Because we're willing to go to Bakhmut. We're willing to go to Kramatorsk. And I have friends that went to Sloviansk, Lisichansk, Severodonetsk. These are cities out there in the Donbass. And we don't see humanitarian aid organizations with big names out there. Largely because I don't think their insurance policy will let them travel there. And their policies won't allow them to f- support frontline units. And so those independent operators that don't operate with this red tape are able to do that. So it's got to be done by veterans like myself and civilians who understand that if Russia takes one more inch, there's going to be more refugees and suffering. If Ukraine keeps that inch, there's going to be less refugees and less suffering. I just wish I had the millions of the big NGOs to do that. And so trying to step into my strength zone, right? Communication, telling the stories. I'm a storyteller. I'm a professional storyteller. I'm a public face and public figure. And so I will be a conduit for the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian NGOs back to America and give them a connection to the American people and money they may not have. And so be doing a podcast, be doing a radio show, doing social media, trying to fulfill these needs of lists that i get 30 of them every single day and connecting donors back in america to those things that are needed today
1: mark j lindquist you are wow you are an extraordinary human being thank you for everything and i'm honored that you've taken this time to speak to me Our guest Mark J. Lindquist. The music is Mark J. Lindquist and his big band performing That's Life, written by Kay and Gordon. Mark can be contacted through Mark J. Lindquist. Com. To see pictures and videos of Mark on his 40-hour march, go to Ukraine242.com, where you can also access our library of previous shows. Editing of this program by Ursula Rudenberg for the Pacifica Network. Recording by Michael Levine. I am Ann Levine, the host and creator of Ukraine242. Thanks very much for listening. Until next week... On Ukraine 242. In
0: the race,
1: that's life, that's life. I tell ya, I can't deny it. Many
0: times I thought of cutting out baby, but my heart just won't buy it.